Welcome. We're uh, in week one, the beginning of a new series called The Rules of Christmas, and this is actually based on the Elf Code, which is uh, the code of the elves that all elves are supposed to abide by from the movie Elf, which is actually loosely based on the real human being, St. Nicholas, who lived about 400 AD in Turkey. And he came up with a set of rules, there's three of them, and, and then the movie Elf kind of adopted them in, in their own little twist. Um, so today we're going to be talking about rule number one. And then after that, we're going to go out of order because next week is Jingle Jam, which you really need to be here for. It's something we're trying brand new this year. It's a family service. It's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of excitement, a lot of energy. Uh, it's just worth seeing because it's either going to be fantastic or it's not. But either way, it's going to be worth watching. Um, so you should be there for that. If you're watching online, it's going to be a great Sunday to visit that Sunday because like I said, great or not so great, it'll be worth it, okay? And then on December 18th, we're going to do rule number two. So kind of out of order, rule number two is going to be December 18th. It's going to be really powerful. I actually have my notes all done for that. I was working on this sermon until like right before the start of the message today. But that sermon I got pretty well. So that should be hopefully pretty good. So you should all be here for pretty much all the weeks. And then with Christmas Eve, anyways, just don't miss a Sunday. That's the point, all right? So now, here's the question. How many of you, as you look at past Christmases, or really any holidays, Thanksgiving, but really like Christmases, you look at past Christmases, uh, how many of you, like when you, you get in the car after kind of it's all said and done and you're heading home you know, for, the, for good, um, or maybe, you know, you get home, and whatever that point is where you finally just sit down and can exhale after everything, all the traveling, all the eating, all the gift giving, all that stuff. How many of you, by show of hands, look at your spouse, think to yourself, wow, Christmas was just perfect. I can't, no, no, a lot of laughing, one person, okay. One person, that's fantastic. That's what I assumed online. I'm assuming it's about the same percentage, you know, one out of 99, okay? So no one, no one has ever said, except for one, it really ruined the flow here, but you know, no one has really said, wow, that was just perfect. It couldn't have gone much better. Very few people, let's say, very, very few people say it shouldn't go, it doesn't go that well, right? There were like the Christmas had no family issues. There's no food issues. There's no gift giving issues. The kids were saints. The in-laws were saints. The weather was great. I mean, it just doesn't really happen all too often. Now, maybe, except maybe when you were six, right, and you didn't know any better, and all Christmas was to you was gifts, and you got the gifts that you wanted, and so everything was great. But for most of us, it's not always perfect. It doesn't go well for a number of reasons, but one of the main reasons is because anything that really involves a lot of people means that there's going to be a lot of expectations. There's going to be traditions. There's going to be rules, both spoken and unspoken. And the only way to deal with, the only way to avoid all of those unspoken and spoken expectations are just to avoid Christmas altogether and avoid seeing other people. But we can't do that. You're going to meet other people. You're going to see other people. And therefore, there is a really, really good chance that those expectations that you have and that they have are going to end up broken right? No matter what. It's even the rules that are spoken. Like even the rules that say, hey, you need to be there at this time are going to be broken. Expectations, though spoken, are so often broken. If you tell everybody that they're supposed to be there at noon for Christmas lunch, 
Some of them will be there at, wow. (laughs) Couple takeaways from what just happened in the room right there, okay? People were instantly ready to answer that question. And the answers, my answer in my notes was 12.30. No, the answers in the room varied wildly from 1 to even 4 p.m. (sighs) Christmas is magical, isn't it? Okay. Yes. Or, you know, there's spoken rules about what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do in regard to gift giving, right? Everybody's supposed to have gifts, and then you show up and you bring gifts, but not everybody has them. Or we're not doing gifts this year, and then you show up, and then people have the gifts. And one way or the other, especially if you brought kids to these experiences, somebody is going to be crying along the way because there wasn't enough gifts. They got more gifts than the other kids got, and nobody's eating because we had to wait till four or so to get the food because we were waiting to eat. I don't, this is just personal experience from my part too. But anyways, you know, it, the conclusion is it takes the joy out of Christmas, right? And, and it makes you, a part of you want to sit there and say, I just want to avoid all of this altogether. You know, it makes you visibly stressed. It makes you visibly dread parts of Christmas, And that's just the spoken expectations, right? And then there's a bunch of unspoken expectations, right? Especially if you have a lot of people there, a lot of people are going to have unspoken expectations. And the sad thing about expectations, often unspoken, are they're going to be broken too, right? And a lot of times there's a lot more unspoken than there were spoken. How many of you are some of the people who travel the farthest, who go the most work to get to that destination and you feel like sometimes that your presence isn't even appreciated or you go with the expectation that Christmas should be positive but yet some people are just being negative or it was supposed to be this many people there and then some people brought extra gifts and then you were short um, gifts or presents and it was just kind of awkward you know, and, and there, there was a plan communicated or not communicated, but everybody else seemed to know, but you, and they were unspoken. Or maybe you, like me, love to eat some of those food items, like you're kind of looking forward to, yes, the people, but also the food. And then some people also are looking forward to for the food, and so they go and they eat all the food. In fact, they not only eat all the food, they have seconds before you even get a plate. And you're like, I don't think that's what Jesus would have done. I don't say that, but I think it. Anyways. (laughs) And so it makes you want to avoid Christmas. And then there's the deeper unspoken things. And these are the ones that I think in the midst of the holiday cheer feel heavier. They feel more substantial and meaningful. Like all that other stuff is logistics. All that other stuff is kind of superficial in a way. And then it comes to the deeper ones. Like those people who go into Christmas hoping for joy and hope, but then they lose their job. And they go into it unemployed. It's difficult to focus on everything that's happening because they're wondering about their future and their paycheck. Or they're sitting financially behind and now even more financially behind because of the decisions they made leading into Christmas. Or the family crisis that nobody wants to talk about. Or the family members that were lost that past year or in past years that should have, that could have been there, but aren't. Or those in the room at Christmas time that are struggling with illnesses or disease or mental illness. And it makes all of those other issues seem small 
and it makes all the little family squabbles small. It's, it feels as though there should be a rule or an expectation or tradition that everybody just gets to be healthy and whole around Christmas, but that isn't the case. And those expectations, or those specifically unmet expectations, can take the joy out of Christmas. They keep the Christmas joy out of reach. And so what do we do? Some of us, we avoid it. Some of us, we grin and bear it to try to make it work and just get through it. And this just isn't really about Christmas, is it? I mean, it could be all times of year. We have expectations, and they go unmet, and it's heartbreaking, and it's difficult, and it's frustrating, both spoken and unspoken. And so today, I want to give you a possible response to all of that, and that's our Christmas rule number one. And it's a rule that the Israelites from 580 BC or so got introduced to. So we're actually going to look at a bit of story that's two and a half thousand years old, but that they could have learned something from, and we certainly can learn something from, and it has a lot to do with Christmas, though it doesn't feel like it should because they're a little different in time, in the timeline. And today, what we're going to look at comes from the book of Isaiah that's in the Old Testament, okay? And uh, the timeline is a bit funny in Isaiah, like who wrote what parts of Isaiah and when did they write it and all that kind of stuff. If you know biblical history, then you know this is a little confusing. Not everybody agrees. We're not going to focus on that part today. We're just going to try to get the truth out of the message that's in this story, or at least part of the truth. Not going to be able to get everything. But that's where we're going to focus and uh, not get into the technicalities too much. So a little backstory, just so everybody has context. So you, you're not going to be his, you know, Bible history majors, but you're going to know a little bit to be dangerous with. Um, th- this whole story begins um, actually many, many years before then uh, with uh, King David. King David was a very famous Jewish king, and he really took uh, the Jewish nation to its pinnacle, Okay, followed by his son Solomon, both kind of well-known guys. And it was the highest point of power and influence in the world at the time. And then from that point on, it was kind of a roller coaster that progressively moved downward. Sometimes up, sometimes down, but ultimately down and down and down. And part of that was the fault of David. Part of that was the fault of Solomon. And then a lot of that was the fault of a lot of other kings to follow Solomon and David. And the nation of Israel once, which was strong and powerful, became two nations because of a civil war and diminished in power until Israel was just a sliver of what it once had been. Here was about um, the, the size of the kingdom of, or the southern kingdom, I should say, of the nation of Israel. The northern at this time was already conquered and and part of the Assyrian Empire and just annihilated. So it was very, very small. You don't have to worry about the movement, but this was, it was just a sliver. Where in David's time, pretty much almost everything on this map that you could see was, plus more, the kingdom of Israel. But they, at this point, were in a terrible, terrible place. I mean, you talk about unspoken, unmet expectations. I'm sure most of the people in the nation of Israel at this point was feeling frustrated and angry that the world was unfair simply because of the struggle that they were enduring because of the state of the country at the time. It was like decades and decades of unmet expectations. And the worst is the nation knew that they would soon be conquered. 
they were conquered by the Assyrians and they soon knew that they would be conquered by the Babylonians, depending on the timeline you look at, or that they, at this point in the story, were conquered by the Babylonians. The Babylonian came, empire came in and exiled them and so they took them out of their homes. Imagine one day you're just sitting in your front porch or something and somebody comes along into your living room, grabs you and says, you're gonna move all the way to modern day Iraq from modern day Israel and begin a whole new life in a country you don't know with people that you don't know. And this was the moment for them that would be like for us the moment when you're ready to give up, when your hope is kind of at its last breath. You're so done. You just kind of want to shake or shake someone for that matter. All those broken expectations for so long have built up and you're just tired of it. And this is 170 years before Christmas, by the way. But Isaiah is gonna come into this and he is going to take the people, the audience, you all, and he's gonna say, no. It's not that bad. Yeah, it's bad, but it's not as bad as you think because of our rule. And so here's kind of how he starts. And he's speaking to the nation of Israel, by the way, um, a bunch of people. And it's kind of like this moment of a coach going into the locker room, like halftime in the, in, the, in the game, you know, and the coach, the head coach, has got to get his people pumped up. He's got to get the people ready to go out there and win and stay focused the rest of the game. So, and, and it, and it kind of sounds like that, okay? So here's how he goes in. He says, awake, awake. Close yourself in strength, Zion. Clothe yourself with your beautiful garments, Jerusalem, the holy city, um, shake, yourself, uh, shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, captive Jerusalem. Okay, get out of the floor, get out of the dirt, and let's go and do something. This is Isaiah 52. Release yourself from the chains around your neck, captive daughter of Zion. So it's very like, get up, let's get going, very encouraging, high energy, okay? And then he goes on in verse seven. He says, and this is how he starts, how beautiful on the mountains. Now, A lot of Old Testament, really even New Testament, you have to have some context to really grasp what's happening here. How beautiful on the mountains. The mountaintops were a symbol of expectation because there was no internet. There were no satellite views. You didn't get live streams from across the world. The only way that you knew something was coming was because you saw it. And the first place that you would see it coming, whether an invasion or maybe a messenger, bad or good news, the way you saw it coming was on the mountaintop. So this is a picture of Israel or of of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, this is actually like an elevated picture, but in Jerusalem, you sit kind of in a bowl and there's mountaintops all around you one way or the other. And so you would see them you would see what was about to happen because you see what's on the mountaintop, good or bad. It was a symbol of expectation. And it's true, this mountaintop analogy is true for us today because we get up and what do we do when we get up in the morning? We think about what we have to do next. We think about what's coming. We look out, we look out the window, we look at our schedule, we look at the day ahead, we look at the Christmas season ahead, the tasks to do, the meetings to get done, the work to accomplish, the kids to take care of, the broken things that we have on our plate that are burdening us that sometimes we fixate on. 
We wake up in a, in a sad place because of what's in front of us. We know things aren't going well, or we know things probably aren't going to go well. We're trepidatious. We have broken hopes and expectations, and they're weighing us down. What are those things? What are those things weighing you down going into this season? What are those things that have weighed you down this week, this past week, or the week ahead? What are those? What are those things that you're putting up on a hill trying to figure out what's going to happen when they finally get to us? How is this thing that we see far off going to work out? Because from here, it doesn't look good. Isaiah's answer, Isaiah's answer to the nation of Israel was look at them. Look at the mountains. Look at what's beautiful about the mountains. He says, I want to tell you what to expect from God. You're looking at all the things you expect around you in the world and around Christmas time or all this stuff that you have going on or the invaders or the Babylonians or occupation or all the things that are unmet expectations in your life. He says, look again. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. It's one of the first moments where this phrase of good news or um, in uh, Greek or in the New Testament, we call the gospel. Or in ancient Greek, we call the euangelion, which is good news. Look for the good news. Those who proclaim peace, those who bring good tidings, those who proclaim salvation. Because, my friends, the good news is what I want to say to you, what these messengers are going to say to you, is that your God reigns. You need to wake up, get out of the dust, because why? Your God reigns. And I get that it may not always feel like your God reigns, but he reigns. And then he goes on over many, many verses, some of, ju- some of which I'm just going to highlight for you, to explain why you should and why the nation of Israel should know that God reigns and should find comfort in that. Now, a lot of this is really appropriate and pertinent to the Israelites, and they would have totally gotten what, and if we had more time, I would explain to you why they would have gotten a lot of this. But I want to focus on one part of this next ex- exposition that he gives telling about why God reigns or why that is good news. And he starts off and he says this, see, my servant is coming. He says, there's a servant, not someone who's coming to be served, but someone who's going to serve. That's the kind of person that's coming. And that servant's going to act wisely. And he will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. At some point, he is going to be highly exalted exalted. And then he goes on to say a lot about this servant. He says, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He's someone who's going to, out of nothing, out of a very inhospitable place, sprout. And he has no stately form or majesty. You're going to look at him and you're not going to think, wow, that guy, this servant is amazing. You're not going to look at this servant and think to yourself, they are just majestic. They are they're trying to exhibit the sense of a king or a royal person. You're not going to see that when you look at him. Nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. Because he was despised. 
and abandoned by men. Everyone took their, turned their back on him. A man of great pain and familiar with sickness. This servant is gonna be familiar with pain. He's gonna be familiar with sickness. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we, corporately, us Israelites, we had no regard for him. However, it was our sickness that he came himself to bear. And it was our pain that he carried. And yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted. We thought he was the problem. And in all reality, he was coming to bear our sickness. He was struck down by God and humiliated. We'd look at him and we'd say, my gosh, God must not like him because, wow, the things that God is letting happen to this servant, God must not like him. He was struck down by God and humiliated. And he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid on him. He's gonna take all of the pain and suffering, all the death that we have brought to our own lives, to the lives of others, and to this world. And by his wounds, we will find healing. All of this, all of us, rather, all of us are like sheep, and we have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. This was 500 or so BC, before Christ. Who is the servant? Who is the servant? Who is the servant that he goes on to say in verse 12? He says, therefore, the servant will give, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors, with the sinners. Who is this? Because this servant, he bore the sins of many and made his intercession for the transgressors. Who is this servant that's gonna make, take all of the pain and suffering that was due to us and take it off of our shoulders? I mean, if you're a church person or not, who does it sound like Isaiah's talking about? Jesus. Sounds a lot like Jesus. And you can go home and you can read this whole 52, 53, 54 of Isaiah. And I, I don't know about you, but it feels really, really clear that Isaiah is stepping into the midst of the challenges of the Israelites and stepping into the midst of our challenges today, our broken expectations, the hearts that we've hardened to the world around us, our anger especially the deep problems, the substantial problems, the problems that feel so immovable that we can't change, that feel like they're life-defining, life-altering, the matters of life and death. And Isaiah is saying to his audience, God is at work. God is not idle. God is present. God has a plan. God's working towards something. Years and years in the making. God knows where he's going. And it will come. It may not be when you think or how you think it should come. Because guess what? Everybody has expectations. And again, what happens when you get a bunch of people in a room that have a bunch of expectations? Somebody's going to get upset. Somebody's expectations aren't going to be met. Not when we think it's time, but when he knows it is time at the appointed time. He will make it right, but he will make it right. 
He is sending a servant to bear the sons of, sins of many so that others can live, that death is not the end. In these moments, Isaiah is saying, stare at that mountaintop, stare at that mountain of expectation. Look at it. The things that burden you, the things that intimidate you, the things that make you kind of recoil and step back and say, those broken expectations are reigning in your life. They're steering your emotions. They're impacting how you make decisions. They're in charge. And Isaiah's point is to the Israelites. And I think the truth that we need to take away from this is no, God should reign. Your God reigns. Your God reigns. Christmas is coming. The servant is coming. Light in the darkness, forgiveness for sins, shame and guilt and sin, forgiveness, hope is coming. Value, your personal value and identity, the truth is coming if you haven't already found it. I mean, so many great verses in here that he, that he highlights and highlights and highlights. And like 54, he said, fear not, for you will not be put to shame. If you're feeling ashamed about your past, fear not. Israel, if you're feeling ashamed, because there's a lot of reasons for you to feel ashamed, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. Why? Because the servant is coming. He's going to show you who God is and what God's about and the love that God has for you. It's coming, and we call that coming Christmas. Read about it when you get home. Yet we all sit here, we all sit here, and we let expectations or the failure of our expectations or the rules or traditions that we have in place reign in our lives, reign in our hearts. And they make us sad and they make us unhappy and they control us and they drive us to pain and hurt. What if God reigned instead? I'm not saying you have to agree with it. I'm not saying you have to believe it. I'm just asking you the question. What if God reigned instead on Christmas? What if you treated every day like Christmas and all the implications that come from it? What if you treated, I brought a pillow because there's just so many. Rule number one, treat every day like Christmas. I think there's a reason that St. Nicholas, the real one, the real person 400 years ago, wanted us to do this, to treat every day like Christmas, like it mattered. I mean, think about the Israelites. What if they would have treated every day from that point forward like Christmas, like a servant was coming, they needed to awake, they needed to pick themselves up, they needed to not fear, they needed to hope, they needed to know that God would be redeeming them, that God had a plan. Would captivity, would exile have been so terrible if they knew that truth? If they trusted in this symbol of God's redeeming, deep, unending love that is Christmas? What if we would treat every day like Christmas and not the stuff that we do at Christmas because we do a lot of stuff at Christmas. Not the gifts at Christmas because you're probably not gonna get what you want. 
and not your family at Christmas because they're probably going to let you down. And not the trip that you're planning to go on at Christmas because it's probably not going to go as expected. And not your health because that's not guaranteed. And not your job because that's at some point going to fall through or disappoint you. Expectations are broken every day, not just at Christmas. Come on. What does this say about God? Christmas, the servant. He's not absent. He's present. He's not here to shame you. He's here to forgive you, to change you, to redeem you, to show you hope and light in the darkest parts of life. That's what Jesus came to do. God's been working at this for a thousand years. He knows we're slow. He knows we take a few. Sometimes we take generations to get it figured out. But he's patient. That's what love does. Love is patient. And he was patient with the nation of Israel at the time, and he's patient with us now. But he's calling us to remember Christmas and the implications of what that means, not all the stuff that we do. That we would come to a place in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, where we would say something like this, my God reigns. When the unmet expectations come rolling around, when the anger starts boiling up, when the fear starts boiling up, when the loneliness starts boiling up, our response is not to go to that which is temporary and brings us unhealth or brings us greed or makes us spend a bunch of money, but we would go to this, my God reigns. My God reigns. We would even say it out loud, my God reigns. It changes our perspective. It helps us to remember what really matters. That a simple gift giving experience on Sunday isn't gonna solve some of the deeper problems that people have in the room on Christmas. But that's okay because my God reigns. And I know some of you are probably like, well, Taylor, that's, that's great and all, but that's just words, man. That's just, ah, Christians, you know, you guys are all about the words. You just, that's what you tell yourselves to make yourselves feel better. You know, the world's still broken. So much has gone wrong. It went wrong for the Israelites. It went wrong a million times since the Israelites. Like, how is God even present? Yes, you're right. It's still broken. That's not what we're claiming here. Because human beings have free will. God has given them free will. And they will take that free will and they will hurt you with it. And you will hurt them with it. No one's claiming that the world is perfect. No one's claiming that. That's not what this statement is about. They're gonna do hurtful things. It's broken. And the earth, I know this is gonna become shock to you, but the earth is not heaven. In fact, as we learned two years ago in a series called Stranger Things, the world, the earth, is the opposite of heaven. God created the heaven and the earth. They're two opposites. Heaven was for heavenly things. The earth was for earthly things. They all had responsibility and they all had role, but the earth is not heaven. And that's why sometimes it feels like there is what on earth? Anybody remember? Hell. That's why earth sometimes feels like a bit of hell more than it feels like a bit of heaven. It's almost a battleground, if you will. And in Christianity, we call it for what it is, broken a battleground, a war zone, if you will. But it doesn't change the truth. You can say at the same time, okay, this is bad. This is not good. And at the same time, you can also say, yes, 
but my God reigns. They're not mutually exclusive. Both can be true. This is not good, but my God reigns. And let's be honest, we don't wanna say my God reigns. We don't wanna say this. We wanna stew in our broken moments. We wanna tell everybody about our broken moments and our pain and our suffering and our unmet expectations. And we want anger to reign and we want pain to reign and we want our fear to reign and our greed to reign in our lives because we have convinced ourselves that it makes us feel better, but it doesn't. It doesn't. You will continue to be disappointed until you decide to put your faith and your trust and your lordship, your kingship of your life. You have the free will to do this in the one who doesn't disappoint. in your heavenly father, in the Lord above. And to not stew and let all of the rest of it reign. That is one side of Christmas that we need to remember. Not just once a year, but every day in our lives. And in the end, God reigns. Who's ultimately in charge, God reigns. Not you, you don't want you to be in charge. You will let you down, you will let others down. You don't want your family to be in charge because they're gonna let you down, you know that. Not doesn't mean they don't love you, doesn't mean they don't care about you, but they're gonna let you down. And so we need to put our hearts on the one who really reigns. It can be celebrated every day, not just on Christmas. Let's treat every day like it was Christmas, especially in those moments when we want anger to reign, especially in the moments when we want our control to reign in our lives, when we want our pain to reign. We want a pity party for ourselves. We want pity to reign for us. Instead, we step into that, and it's so difficult to do, but we say, my God reigns. That's Christmas. That brings people near and far to the foot of a manger, not of a majestic king, but of a baby. You wouldn't look at a baby in a manger and say, well, that's a king right there. He looks great in that straw, hay bale, you know, barn. Isaiah said, no, that's not who's coming. But it doesn't change the fact that your God reigns. If you would, bow your heads, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you so loved the world. You so loved the world. You gave us Christmas. You so love the world, you sent your son to earth, a servant not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as ransom for the transgressions of many, so that many could find life, not death. And that many is us. Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to remember that Jesus is the reason we celebrate Christmas. Jesus is the celebration. And it is a celebration that people could, be, could have been having for hundreds of years before even Jesus came. And as such, we can be having it a hundred years, thousand years since. And it's in that that we can hope. It's in that that we can find life. It's in that that we can walk away from shame and guilt and find forgiveness. It's in that that we can bring hope and light and peace into this world because you so loved us 
and gave to us a gift. Jesus came so that you would give. It's a gift. And it's our choice. It's always been our choice. We have free will. I can't force everyone in this room or online to accept it. It's our choice to receive that gift. It was the choice of the Israelites 2,500 years ago to accept that gift of your love and to be awakened, awakened to that. Lord, help that to be so much greater, to reign over the fear, the death, the anger, the pain in our lives. Help us to choose your reign in our lives, Lord. Nothing else. And in it, find peace. This Christmas, every Christmas, and every day. Jesus, we pray this in your wonderful name. Amen.